one verse that we sing to each other to remind ourselves of the firm foundation. And then four verses of God speaking to us, telling us truths. Look again at that last verse. That God will not desert us to his foes. That though the soul, all hell, should endeavor to shake, that God will never, never forsake. Some of us may feel shaken this morning. God will never forsake you. That's why we're here this morning. Because the God that we worship is bigger than a pandemic. Is bigger than our life's greatest problems. And that He is our solid rock who will never forsake us. My name is John Lee. I'm a pastor here at Bethany Baptist Church. We've made joy to bring you God's word this morning. Peter Jung was supposed to preach, but he didn't pass the CEC screening, and I'm pretty much a designated hitter. So, go and grab your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter. Hebrews chapter 3. Last week we looked at Jesus uh, from chapter 2 verses 5 through 18. About how, how he is the perfect man, the perfect savior, the perfect conqueror, and perfect mediator. Now we pick up where we left off in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. Hebrews 3 verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it is on page... 1062. Thank you, Jeff. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. And it says this. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was, in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways, so I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other, daily, while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? 
Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, we're here this morning because we believe. Yet even now we know that unless you help us, unless your spirit helps us to, to understand your word, we will not get it. Our hearts will be hardened. We will be unbelieving without your help. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit. Help us to understand your word. Help us to listen to what your spirit says. And help us to look to Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. The question of the book of Hebrews is, is Christ worth it? Is Christianity worth it? The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people that are undergoing persecution, trials, harm. In the midst of all that, they're asking the question as to whether or not it is worth following Jesus. And the author of Hebrews' answer is Jesus. Jesus is worth it. And so he takes his time in this chapter to take the... The previous chapter where we talked about who Jesus is and what, what he's like, how he's greater than angels, how he is the perfect man, the perfect substitute for us, and the king of all kings. And now he, he goes from there to apply to us the truth in light of who Jesus is. If Jesus is all those things, then what should we be doing? Which is going to be our main command for this morning. To hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. That's our main command this morning. Hold on to Jesus. Two ways the author encourages us to hold on to Jesus. One, consider Jesus. To consider Jesus. Two, watch out for one another. Watch out for one another. So the main command is to hold on to Jesus. The ways that we do that is by considering Jesus. And by watching out for one another. Let's look firstly at considering Jesus. Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This chapter begins by identifying Christians. We are family, brothers and sisters in Christ, who share in a heavenly Calling This world isn't our home. We are destined for a world better than this one. And those who share in this heavenly calling, uh, as those who, are, who share this heavenly calling, we're called to consider Jesus, to consider him. And that word consider is the same word that the author of Hebrews uses later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, when he uh, exhorts Christians to consider how to stir up love and good works in one another. The, the idea here isn't just a consideration or, or just thinking, but actually being thoughtful. The idea in considering Jesus here is to care, to have an investment in Jesus, to fix your thoughts on Jesus. In, in other words, the Bible isn't just calling us to acknowledge Jesus, 
but to meditate on him. Last week we talked about how Jesus is the perfect man, savior, conqueror, and mediator. And in this verse, the author of Hebrews identifies Jesus as the apostle and the high priest of our confession. The apostle and the high priest. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to be an apostle? We know Jesus had apostles, right? He had 12 disciples, one falls away, and then he gets replaced in in the beginning of the book of Acts. So there's 12 apostles, and Paul gets lopped on later. But how is Jesus an apostle? Well, the word apostle means messenger. So if you think of the apostle as, in terms of its function, as one who is sent to us, Jesus is an apostle. And who is he sent by? He's sent by the Father. Sent by the Father. John 17, 25, Jesus prays, Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known And they have known that you sent me. But messengers aren't just sent. They're sent with a message. They don't just show up, say hi, and then leave. They have something that they need to say. They speak. And Jesus taught us. He did everything that the Father commanded him to do. And Jesus teaches. He did everything that the Father commanded him to do. And not only does he teach truth to us, he is the truth. And that's what makes him the apostle of our confession. That there is one who was sent to us for the purpose of salvation. And that person who sent us, that messenger, is Jesus. But Jesus isn't just an apostle. He's also the high priest. If Jesus only came to be a teacher to help us know how to live the most fulfilling life in the world, then we wouldn't have the hope of the confession that we have. We also believe that Jesus is the high priest. The high priest. And and what does the high priest do? Well, in Leviticus 16, once a year, in Israel, what the high priest would do is he would go into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence would dwell. He would have to sacrifice an animal for himself. Traditionally, they would even tie a rope around him because if he walked into the Holy of Holies and something messed up, he would be struck dead. And they didn't want to go in there to grab him because they would die too. They would just kind of pull him out with the rope. He'd go into the to the Holy of Holies, and he would present one sacrifice per year as a, sin, as a sacrifice of atonement for the whole nation. And Jesus comes to preach good news. But as the high priest, he himself is the good news, the true sacrifice for sins for us. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, this good news is what we Christians hold on to. See, Jesus was both an apostle and a high priest. Jesus didn't just come to teach us how to live a better life here on earth. He was sent to teach, but he was also not just to, trying to help us improve our life here on earth, but to inform us about our sinful plight. See, you and I, as, as sinners on this earth, are not in need of tips and tricks to improve our lives or to wash ourselves and make ourselves holier by what we do. What you and I are in need of is forgiveness. Jesus didn't come as an apostle just to teach, but he also came as a high priest. Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He was God made man. Truly God. Truly man. He lived the perfect life that you and I never could. And Jesus went a step further than any other high priest. 
Rather than just going into the Holy of Holies and presenting a sacrifice, Jesus presents himself as that sacrifice. And on the cross, Jesus bore the penalty of God's wrath that you and I deserved in our rebellion. And he died. But three days later, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, paying that penalty in full. And he ascended to heaven where he sits right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding, proclaiming that he has covered those who have turned away from their sins and trusted in him alone for salvation. And that can be you. You can turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus today. You can be forgiven of all of your sins because of this high priest, this apostle who was sent to you to save you. The author of Hebrews exhorts us to consider Jesus because Jesus is faithful in his role as apostle and high priest. And he's faithful just like another figure in the Bible that we're about to see in verse 2. Read with me in verse 2. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was in all God's household. Jesus is faithful to the one who appointed him, just like Moses. But Jesus is more than Moses. So the author starts by presenting a parallel. Jesus is faithful, just like Moses was faithful. And now, in the following verses, the author of Hebrews is going to play the comparison game, like so many of our parents did growing up. See, in fact, the author of Hebrews gives two illustrations to demonstrate that Jesus is better than Moses. The first one is in verses 3 and 4. Read with me. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Is God. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Even though Jesus is faithful like Moses, Jesus is greater than Moses. And, and the illustration that the author gives here is building to the builder. So the one who builds is of more glory than the thing built. Every building has a builder, but the one who builds everything is God. And God creates all of creation. So, so there are kind of three rapid comparisons that are happening here. First is you have Jesus and Moses. You have the builder and the building, and you have God and creation. And the idea is that Jesus is the builder and God, whereas Moses is the building and something that is created. Now, if Moses was a house, he'd be a pretty nice man, mansion. He'd be pretty bougie. I mean, he wrote the first five books in the Bible. He led Israel out of Egypt, led them through the wilderness, gives them the Ten Commandments, staff turns into a snake, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So we're probably mud huts compared to Moses' edifice. But Jesus isn't just a better house. He's more glorious than Moses, not just because he's better at what Moses did. Jesus is in a completely different category than Moses. Moses is created, whereas Jesus is creator. Moses is a house, whereas Jesus 
is a builder. In other words, Jesus isn't just another building. He's the one who builds all houses. He is God. It's not just that he's a good moral teacher, but he's the one from whom every good moral teacher came from. You could put all of history's greatest teachers on one side of the scale, and then put Jesus on the other, and the teachers would be catapulted out of the atmosphere. It's not a fair comparison. It's not even close. Jesus, Moses is a building. Jesus is the builder. That's, that's the first comparison, or first illustration. Here's a second illustration here in verse 5. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. The second illustration is that Moses is a servant in God's house while Jesus is the son. Moses is a servant, Jesus is the son. Think of Moses like a houseman who knows that the owner of the house will be there soon, so he rushes around to dust the shelves and clean the sheets, but it's all ultimately for the arrival of the homeowner, the arrival of the son. Moses is a servant who testifies to what would happen in the future, but Jesus is the son who comes home, and he's faithful over his household. It's not that he has responsibilities in the house, like a maid that you hire to clean your home. But he has responsibility over his house. It's his house. And that house is us. If we hold on to our confidence in the hope in which we boast. Now, the tone of, the, of this verse, we want to be careful here, is not one of chastising us. Sometimes you read a verse like verse 6 and it feels like they're dangling eternity in front of us on a fishing rod, chiding us to keep pushing lest we lose it. And I want to be really clear in saying that this verse isn't threatening us to obey lest we lose our salvation. That's not the idea in this verse at all. The tone of the verse isn't asking, are you really saved though? I'm trying to get you to question your assurance. The idea is more of an encouragement to, for us to keep going. What do I mean by that? I mean that our holding on to the confidence and the hope in which we boast is the evidence of the fact that we really are his household. In other words, the author is assuming that you're already doing this. And he's trying to further affirm that you are his household by the fact that you are holding on. So here's an example of what I mean. Let's say, for example, I were to stand here and say, Peter Jung didn't pass the CEC screening if I'm preaching this morning. Okay. Peter Jung didn't pass the CEC screening if I am preaching this morning. That sentence makes sense, right? Everyone understands what that sentence means. But notice what that sentence doesn't mean. Okay. Me preaching behind this pulpit didn't infect Peter with a stuffy nose. Right? So me saying that P Peter Jung didn't pass the CEC screening if I'm preaching this morning doesn't mean that I am causing Peter to be sick. Rather, the fact that I'm preaching here this morning provides evidence for the assumption that Peter didn't pass the CEC screening. 
uh, a lot of ways of just saying Peter didn't pass his easy script and preaching is going. Hi, Pete. Let's take that and look at verse 6 again. Okay, read, read it again with me. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence in the hope in which we boast. Okay. Now, what this sentence is not saying is that holding on to our confidence and hope in which we boast makes us Christ's household. That's not what it's saying any more than me preaching here behind the pulpit makes Peter sick. Right? What the author is telling us is to keep holding on as an encouragement because you are God's household. If you keep holding on, you are God's house. So keep holding on. That's the idea. And do you realize that for those of us who have held on to the confidence and the hope that we have in the gospel, those of us who are Christians, who have trusted in this Jesus, that we are Christ's house. We're God's house. And notice there in, in verse 5 and verse 6 that it says that Jesus is going to be faithful to his household. That Christ is going to be faithful. That's the point of the verse. Not that we should keep holding on to our confidence and hope because we're scared of the threat of hell, but because of the fact that Christ is going to be faithful to you. He will never abandon you. He will always be there for you. And if you are his house, then you can keep holding on to that confidence and that hope in which we boast. Let me elaborate some more on this idea of God's house. Turn back in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. David wakes up one day in his palace and he gets convicted because he's living in an ornate place while God is living in a tent. So he decides to make God a house, a temple. And God responds here in verse 11. Verse 11. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you, your descendant, who come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. God responds to David earlier, before the text that we, we read, and God responds and he says, you're going to make me a house, David? You're going to make me a house. I'm going to make you a house. And look again at that promise in verse 16 about the son of David. He says, your house and kingdom will endure before me. How long? Forever. Forever. 
God promises David that his son will come and build a house, and that house will be established forever. And what we've been learning so far in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus, the Davidic son, came. And who's his house? We are. Which means, if God meant what he said in 2 Samuel 7, in his promise to David about this house that he will build for David's son, that means that we're not going anywhere. You will endure forever because Christ will always be faithful to you. And that's why this house has the trait of confidence and hope. You can have absolute assurance that if you are in Jesus, you will endure forever. Not because you're awesome, or because your faith doesn't get shaky, but because God's promises are always true. If God promised that this house will endure forever, then so will we, because we are that house. So keep holding on. You can have faith, confidence in Christ, because Christ will be faithful to you. So look to Jesus. That's point number one, to consider Jesus. That's the first way that we hold on to Jesus. Here's the second way. Watch out for one another. To watch out for one another. Look, look with me from verse 7 in Hebrews 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go stray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. The author quotes Psalm 95, which we read earlier in our service. The psalmist looks to the days of rebellion in the wilderness. Before Israel enters into the promised land, after they get uh, led out of Egypt, they disobey the Lord. They don't listen to Moses and to God. And so God has them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation passes away, minus two men. He waits, makes them walk around in a bunch of circles. Because of their hardened hearts, the Lord swears that they will not enter the rest. What is that rest? Well, uh, we'll dive into that whenever we get to chapter 4, which... Uh, at this rate, will probably be next week. <laughs> but in short, the rest is the rest to come when we are in glory with God. But notice what the ancestors did wrong in verse 9. Here. It says, Where your ancestors tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. They tested God. They constantly questioned Him. So he was provoked to anger. And notice that they saw God's works. I mean, this generation got to see more supernatural stuff than any other human generation in history. They saw the ten plagues in Egypt. They saw water come from a rock. They saw manna appear on the ground and quail sent for them to eat. They were bit by venomous snakes and looked at a bronze serpent to get healed. 
But when they got to the promised land, and they hear reports about how large the people were there, they didn't believe. And so the Lord was provoked to anger. They encountered amazing things, and yet they still had unbelieving hearts. You can see God's work all around you. You can witness the grace of God in the lives of those around you. You can see mind-blowing insights as you read the Bible and still go astray in your heart. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we heed the warning that the author of Hebrews gives us in verse 12. Let's read together. It says, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to watch out. And what are we watching out for? We're watching out for an unbelieving heart. For an unbelieving heart. Are you watching your heart? Have you done a heart autopsy? What are the things in your heart that, that tempt you towards evil and unbelief? What is drawing you to turn away from the living God? Whether it's idolatry or unbelief, God calls us to be alert and to watch out. And what's difficult about a hardened heart is that sin is deceptive. Sin is deceptive. Here's what Spurgeon says about this verse. He says, If sin were to come to us, labeled as sin, I trust we would reject it. Sin does not uncover all its hideousness or reveal its horrible consequences, but it comes to us in a subtle way, offering us advantages. If the devil will come in the shape of a devil, he would do little mischief. But he assumes the fashion of an angel of light, and that is how he causes us so much sin and sorrow. Satan knows more about us than we know about ourselves. He knows our raw places and our weak points. So what do we do in order to fight such a deceptive enemy? What we do is what the author of Hebrews tells us to do. We watch out. But verse 12 isn't directed primarily at you, the individual. This command is primarily given to a group of people. In fact, the word for watch out here is the exact same word for consider in chapter 3, verse 1, when it tells us to consider Jesus. It's the same word in terms of watching out for one another. And the author of Hebrews repeats that again in Hebrews chapter 10, when he tells us to watch out for one another again. In other words, what we're supposed to do here in this room is we are supposed to care or consider one another to make sure uh, over one another to make sure that there isn't an evil unbelieving heart Christians have a responsibility to care about each other to look out for one another this is why we care about church membership so much isn't because we have deep affections for Robert's rules of order It's because we're trying to make explicit this command we as Christians have a responsibility for one another. We're supposed to watch out for one another. That's why we recited the church covenant together last Sunday. Not only are we committing to be faithful to the Lord in our own lives, but we're also recognizing that faithfulness in our lives 
involves a shared Christian life with one another. We're watching out to make sure that there isn't an evil, unbelieving heart in anyone. And when we join the church, what we're doing is we're committing we're to taking that responsibility for one another. But, but how do we prevent an unbelieving heart? We're supposed to look out and watch out and consider and care for one another to make sure that there isn't one. How do we prevent that from happening? How do we prevent an evil, unbelieving heart? Read with me from verse 13. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. The way we watch out, the way that we administer the antidote to an evil, unbelieving heart is encouragement. Encouragement. Do you encourage those around you? Do you encourage those around you? Your words possess great power. The, the Lord has entrusted us with the ability to use our words to impact those around us. And we have the capability of tearing down or building up those around us by what we decide to say. And with great power, there must also come great responsibility. Do you make a concerted effort to encourage your fellow church members? You should. Choosing to encourage your fellow church members is not optional. That doesn't mean that it's not possible for you to say harmful words as well. But silence is no substitute for encouragement. You will either encourage your church family, harm your church family, or neglect your church family. There's no other option. Make it your business to speak words of life. Our words are our strongest weapon against unbelief because words seep into the very depths of our soul. So here are, some, here are five encouragements for you as we seek to encourage one another. Number one, encourage each other biblically. Encourage each other biblically. There's nothing more valuable that you can speak to one another than words from the book of life. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if you don't know what to say, let God speak for you. Use the Bible to point others to Jesus. Second encouragement. Encourage each other frequently. Frequently. Verse 13 says to encourage each other how often? Daily. That word daily means every day. In other words, encouragement is something that we should always give, which is likely, which likely means it's something that we'll always need. So fill your quiver with encouragement and be ready to fire whenever the opportunity comes. Oftentimes, small hits of encouragement can be just as encouraging as grandiose acts of thankfulness. So do both. But either way, make sure that you're encouraging one another frequently. Third, encourage each other wisely. Encourage each other wisely. As we seek the good of others, we should try to encourage them in wise ways. There is not a one-size-fits-all approach to encouragement. So exercise wisdom as you care for those around you. 
Take the attitude of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. Be at peace among yourselves. We exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Sometimes, encouragement is going to look like a rebuke. Other times, encouragement is going to look like consolation. So exercise wisdom as you encourage each other to follow Jesus. Number four, encourage each other prayerfully. Encourage each other prayerfully. One of the things that I do when, when I pray through my membership directory is I think about how I'm going to be encouraging different members of the congregation after that week or on the Lord's Day as I pray for you. I think about that. So some of the stuff that's spontaneous and encouraging for you, I, it's not spontaneous. I planned it. I prayed for you. Right? I thought about it. I came in the Lord's Day ready to do this. Right? And we do it prayerfully. When you pray for each other, when you pray with one another in person, when you're reaching out to one another, letting people know that they're praying for you or hearing how you can be praying for them, you are encouraging those around you. And we do this every Sunday night in our prayer gatherings. You're sharing blessings and prayer requests. Oftentimes, encouragements come mixed in with prayers. I think that's the way that God likes it. So join us every Sunday night to encourage each other corporately and prayerfully. Here's the last one. Encourage each other proactively. Encourage each other proactively. Many of us have difficulty speaking up about anything, let alone encouraging another person. But I want to exhort you this morning that your church family needs you to speak up. Needs you to speak up. One of my models of faithful encouragement is a pastor in New York named Ed Moore. Uh, ever since I spent one summer with him, He's made a permanent impression on me on the value of encouragement. He encourages his children so much that I feel like they're spoiled. Every guest in his home gets a full tank of encouragement before they leave. And ever since I left his church two years ago, he texts me like every month or two to let me know how proud he is of me, that he's praying for me and wanting to know how I'm doing. And one of the mottos of his life regarding encouragement is, if you see something, say something. If you see something, say something. And wouldn't we all want an Ed in our lives? Someone who's constantly noticing and encouraging us to keep on in the faith. Well, you have the opportunity and the ability to be an Ed Moore for someone else. Maybe it would be a good idea for you to use the takeaway time after the service, after the sermon, to share encouragements that you have with the people around you, for those people, for those members that you are sitting with. Be a good opportunity to practice proactive encouragement. God wants us to encourage one another because that is the antidote against an evil, unbelieving heart. And you have every ability to use it, to do so. Verse 14. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start. We have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly to the end. 
Again, this is where we have to be careful with the wording of this verse. The verse is saying that if we hold firmly until the end, we show evidence that we have become participants in Christ. This does not mean that we can lose our salvation. Instead, we're supposed to be assured of our salvation while being exhorted to continue to hold on. Does that make sense? So let me give you one more example of what I mean, because sometimes it still doesn't make sense in our own minds. We go to the Bible and, and turn back to Acts 27. There's a good example of assurance mixed with commands for obedience here. Acts 27. I just want to, I'm just going to point out a couple of verses for us to read together here. In, in Acts 27, Paul is sailing for Rome when his ship gets wrecked. And uh, everyone's going to sink. And, and he says this in verse 22 in Acts 27. He says, Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only the ship. Okay? So the ship is sinking, and Paul gives them a prophetic encouragement. All of you are going to live. Right? That's a promise that he's, he's prophetically declaring there. But then the ship ship begins drifting and people on the ship panic and they try to get out and like tie your boats and, and other things. And it's interesting what, what Paul says in verse 31 in Acts 27. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Okay, so in verse 22, Paul tells them that they're all going to live. Verse 31 Paul tells them very clearly, you need to stay in the ship or else you're going to die. Well, both are true at the same time. And everyone, because they heard that warning in verse 31, stays in the ship. And in verse 44, everyone makes it safely onto shore. In the same way, the author of Hebrews in verse 14 is saying that true believers have become participants in Christ. Right? At the same time, he's urging true believers who are going to make it to the end, stay in the ship, and you're going to live. Keep holding on. So it's not meant to be threatening you about eternity. It's actually meant to encourage you on the basis of the assurance that you have in Jesus. So hold on, not because you're going to go to hell, but because you're going to go to heaven. Keep holding on. You are participants in Christ. Our hope is secure in Jesus. We're going to go wherever he takes us. And this warning is here for us as a tool, as an encouragement for us, as an exhortation to us to stay on the path of obedience. Because God cares about our obedience and how we get there just as much as the fact that we are going to get there. So keep holding on. Verse 15. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Was it all who came out of Egypt under Moses, with whom God was angry for forty years? Was it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Those who rebel against Moses and those who heard were people that heard and rebelled. Moses spoke to them. They didn't listen. 
They heard the word of the Lord, and yet they still rebelled against him. And they couldn't enter the rest. Notice there, they couldn't enter the rest. Not because of their disobedience, but because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. The difference between those who enter into the rest, those who make it to the promised land, and those who do not, is whether or not they believe. That's why we're so focused on unbelieving hearts. That's why we watch out for one another. It's because we're concerned about belief. And that's why, more important than questioning whether or not we're saved or not, we're supposed to keep our eyes focused not on ourselves, but outside of ourselves. We're supposed to look at the person that we're believing in. We're supposed to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Because the line between those who will be saved and those who are not saved is not between whether or not you are good enough, or whether or not you've con convinced God that you're worthy, but because you've believed God. And how could we not trust Him? He's not just another sinful servant who came to clean up the house. He is the owner of the house. He's He's the son. He's not just a house. He's the house builder. And we are his stones being put together to form a house for him, a temple for the Holy Spirit. The Lord has promised that this house will be established forever and ever. That's why we can sing joyfully and triumphantly to the Lord while simultaneously exhorting one another to not lose heart, to not harden our hearts. We can believe and warn one another against unbelief. And that's why we're supposed to hold on to Jesus, because Jesus will be faithful to you. And as we talk to each other, as we encourage each other, what we're going to do is remind each other of the faithfulness of Christ, as we encourage one another and urge each other to press on in obedience. That's why we're gonna sing at the end of the service, that, that the armor that we have is Christ for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said that he will deliver safely to the golden shore. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the precious gift of Jesus. We thank you that he has been faithful to us and that he will continue to be faithful to us. And Lord, we cannot press on in obedience without your Spirit's help. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to take our eyes off ourselves, to consider Jesus, and to watch out for one another, to make sure that we're all looking at Jesus together. Pray, Lord, even during our takeaway time now, that we would be able to speak encouraging words of life to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.